Welcome to the Double Loop Podcast, your source for everything about fingerprints. This is Michelle from Baton Rouge, Louisiana. While you're working on your comparisons, we'll talk about comparisons. I'm Eric Ray. And I'm Glenn Langenberg. Well, Glenn, welcome to 2020, a new decade, the 20s, yeah? Yeah, the 20s, the roaring 20s. Uh, the soaring 20s, I've heard someone say. <laughs> Who knows? We'll see what happens. We're like a week and a half in. Welcome, everyone uh, out there listening, and uh, thank you guys for joining us for another year. Glenn, uh, any any interesting New Year stories? You know, the the last one about you know a holiday party in Denmark was uh, it was pretty great. Uh, anything that can compete with that? No, no, I had a pretty. I, had a, I went out for New Year's Eve. Went out to a bar. It was it was fine. Nothing nothing very exciting. You know the the usual usual bar shenanigans. Nothing, nothing, nothing exciting. Anything on your end? I I I will say though, I did stay up past midnight though. So oh I, my goodness, let, let me let me give myself credit there. <laughs> Congratulations, you old man. Thank you. Um, no, it's just a typical thing here. Um, my my wife and her family had a tradition of every kid that stayed up all the way to midnight got a full size Hershey's bar. So we've continued on that tradition, and it's much easier now for the kids since they're all much older. <laughs> but uh, <laughs> I think the hard part is um, uh, is for us to stay up that late. No, I made some um, like uh, let's see uh, artichoke and crab dip and and. Uh, Oh, my my daughter was really excited because on I think it was the Dick Clark's special actually in New York City that one of the big guests was uh, BTS. Are you familiar with BTS, Glenn? Is that Bachman Turner syndrome? <laughs> I just, just don't remember what it stands for, but this is the the big uh, K-pop invasion that's ah, currently nice. underway, uh, and they were the big guests there. I, I'm hoping one classic rock person out there laughed at that. <laughs> No, I, I got the re- yes, I got the reference, but uh, yeah, a couple generations or a couple columns over on the Excel spreadsheet from BTO would be B- <laughs> BTS, <laughs> right? Uh, all the crazy musics that the, the young kids are into now, but uh, yeah, one my uh, one of my daughters is really into into K-pop and especially BTS, so she was super excited to see them on uh, Dick Clark's Rock and Eve. No, I missed it. As we get started in the show, I want to remind people that uh, you can go to doubleloopodcast.com and uh, on the store page there, click on some links to uh, to see some of the merchandise that we've got up. We've got some fun t-shirts and we've got some stuff with our podcast logo on it. So hopefully something out there that uh, you guys will like. And uh, also you can go to patreon.com, search for Double Loop Podcast. And to support us that way, just you know, directly giving us money instead of buying something from uh, the store. That works too. We like money. You know, money can be exchanged for goods and services. Services like the service we provide here <laughs> on the Double Loop Podcast. So big thanks to Dan and to Trish, uh, two new, um, or I think in Dan's case, maybe a returning uh, donor to the uh, Double Loop Podcast. Thank you guys very much. Uh, for signing up, well, we definitely appreciate it, and, and welcome to our our little club. We we're um, continuing to try to put out extra content for those uh, those patrons on Patreon.com. Yeah, and uh, Eric, I'll just plug a few classes coming up if you're interested. Other ways to support other ways to support us are through classes. And uh, I will be teaching a few different classes this year. I'll just give the ones up until uh, late spring. Go to ronsmithandassociates.com if you're interested in registering for any of them. I'll be teaching the Advanced ASB class in Canada, March 23rd through the 27th. Uh, I will be also be teaching the Advanced ASB class in New Jersey. That's April 20th through the 24th. And then I've got two exclusion classes that I teach with John Black. That'll be April 27th through May 1st in Colorado and May 18th through May 22nd in Florida. So that should be a, a pretty busy spring. And then I got a bunch of invites, Eric. This is just a not so humble brag, but <laughs> got a couple of invites where I'll be going to the United Kingdom to teach in the spring, nice. which is kind of fun. Yep. And also Portugal, which will be kind of a, a new one for me. I, that's one of the countries in Europe I haven't been to, so I'm excited about that. You're not, you're not driving through Portugal to get to any other country in Europe, so yeah, I guess that'd be one reason you know why you may not have been there, but that's definitely exciting for you. Check another one off the list. 
Yeah, excited about that. And then I've got one other thing to share with you. This this really came out, out of the blue. You remember how in 2010 through 2012, there was an NIJ committee, sponsored committee through NIST to do human factors group for fingerprints, and they issued a report, and we've discussed it before. On yeah, the human factors report, yep, yep. Yep, yeah. And just recently, they did the same thing and finished for question documents and handwriting, so they're all done with that. And they're doing their third one, and I was invited to sit on that, and it, and it is for DNA interpretation. Really? Yeah, so I'm actually really excited about that, having the opportunity to go and... Uh, listen to how DNA people do their interpretation, their methodology, and discuss human factors and, and best practices and help write recommendations for that. I'm actually very excited about that and hope to bring some of that info back for us for discussion. Absolutely. That's that's really exciting. And and uh, it sounds like you got a, I got a lot of homework to do to, to brush up on um... – uh, That's really true. In fact, I just purchased two textbooks on DNA interpretation, <laughs> so the classic one and then a more modern one on mixtures by uh, John Buckleton, who if any listeners know the DNA field, he's kind of a, a fairly well-known but a little controversial guy who deals with some of the probabilistic genotyping stuff. So I'm excited to jump into both, uh, both of those textbooks. Excellent, and congratulations, sir. Congratulations. Ah, thanks, man. 2020 is looking all right so far. All right. All right, well, the topic here for this week is going to be on uh, activity, and we're going to make this kind of a, a little mini-run series, uh, a few episodes in a row with some interviews on how activity-level propositions fit into uh, specifically our field of uh, fingerprints. Uh, so, Glenn, what, you want to give us a little intro of what we're going to be talking about for the next couple of weeks? Yeah, this is some. I'm going to first start off with just a little bit of background and some thoughts and observations. Having the um, pleasure and fortune to learn about forensic science in the, in Europe and from European scholars, I learned very quickly how little I knew about forensic evidence interpretation and and frankly some of the basic tenets of forensic science when i started attending uh, the the court you know the the um, phd program in uh, in switzerland with christoph shampo and working with people like cedric newman and other european scientists uh, or forensic scientists i should say you know, pr margot and so forth and even though i had a forensic science degree here in the united states from a professor who actually had worked in a forensic lab it became pretty clear to me that in the united states we don't do a very good job of teaching forensic science we teach frankly we teach forensic principles and forensic examinations to individuals who often are going to be forensic technicians working for a government lab and likely not doing research in the forensic field they'll be doing testing and they and they and really have frankly very limited training and exposure to what is available and what they probably should learn and they shouldn't feel bad because they don't know what they don't know. And I'm saying this because I was one of those people. I was definitely one of them. Uh, I learned the basics of, you know, I had the standard standard textbook of, you know, Safferstein's Introductory Forensic Science that teaches you class characteristics and individual characteristics and teaches you some of the basic ideas in each of the different examinations, but you don't really learn the, the fundamentals of evidence interpretation and what it means to be a forensic scientist. One of my beliefs about this is that mostly because in the United States, these programs are not taught by forensic scientists. They are often taught by a chemistry professor who's asked, hey, can you start teaching some forensic courses? It's really popular. We want people to take these classes. <laughs> or someone who did crime scenes for a number of years who maybe gets a master's degree and, and then is tapped on the shoulder by the university to teach a, a couple of forensic courses and that. They're just often not taught by people with the classical forensic training and education. And again, I was one of those, and I, I, I learned that I didn't know a lot of things about forensic interpretation. So th what we're going to talk about today 
this concept of propositions, this concept of stating your propositions, testing these hypotheses, uh, source level versus activity level versus other levels, a lot of that just simply isn't taught in the United States and in my opinion is a mistake not to and forensic scientists should learn this stuff. It's actually really important to understanding what forensic science is and I, and I can't emphasize enough. I just wish that forensic science in the United States was taught by forensic scientists. Too many people – you and I have talked about this. There are too many people, yeah. lo- lawyers, law professors, um, psychologists and chemists and biologists think that – it's really not a real science. It's a subset. It's an applied science, and they don't really think uh, they they think that they can just pick it up and teach it, and they don't know uh, or have a good framework or understanding of the philosophy of forensic science. That kind of reminds me, just a little side topic here of of a post um, that I saw on Reddit and a response that I made to it, uh, where the poster. Uh, was you know talking about junk science versus true science, hmm. and just kind of looking at you know what's in the news, what what's in true crime TV shows and podcasts, and, and you know that kind of stuff. You know, you just kind of tell from the poster that the original poster um, isn't a forensic scientist but has this interest, and you know was asking about you know what universities do in their coursework to remedy this question of what's junk science versus what's true science. Now, again, this is a, a little off topic uh, from what we're going to be getting into of, of activity level stuff or these questions that you're, you're posing of, of, uh, of you know, what a forensic scientist is asking. But uh, it was a surprise to the, that poster when I responded and said, well, you know, for the most part, uh, when you go to university, you don't learn how to do these these forensic tests it's more of a theory kind of thing in university and it's not until you actually start your job at Mm -hmm. a crime lab where they teach you how to actually do the tests and then it's really just the technical part of it and i think it lacks some of the theoretical yeah some of you what you were talking about here being in university i think is important but also i i think it's time to for forensic programs to actually Start taking some of that training that right now is on crime labs to do and moving into uh, actual forensic programs uh, because some of the – just as an example, if bite mark evidence had been taught in university for you know the past, oh, 30 years, some of the failures in that uh, discipline would have quickly risen to the surface by professors – you know, that are knowledgeable in it, trying to teach it to university students, having tests done uh, at universities. But if it, when, it's, it's all, when it's all theoretical, you don't see some of the limitations in the science that you would get from actual practical application. So, yeah, fair. So, this is just kind of playing off of, you know, your, your mentioning of what's taught in university. Uh, yeah, there's there's a there's a lot that forensic programs can do to to improve what they're teaching to uh, to students. I, I I totally agree, and I I think that these that the educational programs really do need some improvement and bringing things back to what is actual forensic science. And I hope I I hope tonight that and for the next couple of episodes as we start getting into these things. Listeners will realize that this isn't just Glenn and Eric trying to introduce some hokey academic stuff. What we're actually trying to say is, hey, if you don't know this stuff, you kind of missed out on Forensics 101, but it's not your fault because no one's actually teaching it. Even in the courses that you take, the professional courses, I I, I know I teach it in my advanced ASB class, but I don't know many other instructors teach it. So if you haven't been exposed to it, don't feel bad, but this should be a notice to you that, hey, you're missing out on literally some fundamental things that you should be building off of. And if you are truly interested, you can actually take courses out there in, in this very topic taught by professors at the University of Lausanne. They have an online program, and you can get college degree credit 
for the course as well. Now, it's not cheap, but if your agency or you are you know, willing to fund it or you know, however that works or you've got some – educational reimbursement through your union or agency, consider consider that. Online courses taught by professionals who understand this stuff and can teach you uh, a good year or a year and a half worth of fundamental forensic science principles. It, it's really worth checking out. And it, it's a great program and taught by some of the most knowledgeable people in the field on this topic. All right. So where are we going to start with this? So somewhere, even I'm not quite sure about the date, so someone could probably correct me on this, but I believe some of the papers that I first started reading about this are roughly from the 90s or so. So I'm going to say somewhere in the 90s, there really was a group of scientists uh, by the name name of Ian Evett, who uh, maybe listeners of the podcast have heard me or you bring up his name before, but Ian Evett is kind of one of the key guys, along with people like Graham Jackson, Cook is another one. There there were a number of – there are a number of people in Europe who are very interested in this concept uh, of – what's called hierarchy of propositions or formulating propositions. And some of the first things that start off with this is what's called case assessment or pre-assessment. This is where a case comes into the laboratory and the forensic scientist sits down with the investigator or possibly, especially in Europe, the attorneys, the prosecution and defense and say, okay, so what's your story here? What's your story here? All right, so what are the questions that we need to ask? What's the relevant evidence? How are we going to go about testing this? What, you know, in what order and so forth? And so it's a, it's a collaborative exercise in asking what is relevant? What are the elements we need to prove or disprove? And let's start collecting evidence. It is very different than how we would do things in the U.S. from an adversarial approach, which as we've talked about in the past, is you do your tests and then defense can paint whatever defense they want around the actual results, which is the exact opposite of science. Right. And we've talked at length before about how, how the adversarial approach uh, is in you know, direct conflict with with a scientific approach, how it's based on precedent as opposed to and the past as opposed to looking forward with new developments and all of the, the limitations that come with that. Yeah. So in the United States, barring that sitting down in, in that kind of fashion, then you would sit down with the investigator or the attorney and then start going through, all right, what do we want to test? What are the questions that are actually relevant? And of course, that all requires case information to be able to do that. And that has been you know, a concern because, of course, that's quote-unquote biasing. And these original papers really didn't discuss that issue. In fact, some of them, including Pierre Margot, has been very clear in some of his writings. John Thornton's another one who sort of at first was like, look, I'll take my chances against an error from bias I would much rather have full information than make an error from not having the full case information. I'm a scientist. I'd rather have all the information and then be able to make good, clear assessments on the evidence and what are the relevant questions that need to be asked in the first place. If you try to blind me from that, I could make a mistake or miss something pretty relevant and there might not be any way to go back later and capture that again. It's a very different view than we've discussed with previously with you know, in in terms of bias. Oh, absolutely. I mean, you know, if just think about the most famous example with Leighton Prince with Brandon Mayfield, if uh, the FBI examiners had had some biasing information, like he hasn't left the country in X many years or other stuff like that, you know, that, that may have caused a second more critical look. And uh, I think that's a really key aspect when considering bias is okay okay hold on yeah, yeah we've got this assumption that bias is bad you know when it comes to uh, to this extra information but if it can make us more accurate shouldn't we go with the the information that makes us more accurate it, like isn't mm-hmm. yeah. isn't accuracy in the end trump bias in in what's important well, that actually becomes the focus of a big discussion and a paper credited to Dan Crane, who is a DNA guy, and a number of other people uh, who have uh, – Nora Rudin, Keith Inman, Michael Sachs, 
um, various other critics who have spoken up against pattern evidence in the past. Uh, in fact, there's maybe 20 people assigned to this paper, uh, all these different names. And the paper deals with something called sequential unmasking. And the right. idea is, okay, so we recognize that someone needs to formally go through this case and do all of, and start formulating these questions, figure out what's relevant, figure out what tests need to be done and so forth. But have that be someone called a case coordinator who is a forensic scientist and the person doing the tests is actually blinded from the case information. So do it in a two-stage process. So they recognize what Cook and Jackson and Evett were all focusing on, this idea of a pre-assessment of the case, the case assessment, but do it in such a way that shields or prevents the person making critical testing decisions from having critical case information. It's a compromise, frankly, because, uh, you know, it doesn't say no and it doesn't say yes. It says if you're going to do it, do it this way. And then in the end, the person who's doing the test can learn all this information and then you can make some assessment. Uh, It just requires doing it in multi-stages. So, okay. So there is a solution for doing that. It's this sequential unmasking approach. It's just, you know, expensive. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and, and there's a paper where we actually explored the cost and how much time it took to do that. And it was not insignificant. I mean, it added 20% of time to a case to do that. And while that might not sound like a ton, when we figured out hours, number of cases per year and so forth and how many people – because you have to have a forensic scientist who's actually proficient and knowledgeable about that particular discipline. But it's a multidisciplinary case. You have to have multiple case coordinators. Yep. They're probably going to be at, at least a technical lead level. Uh, you're, I mean it adds – pretty quickly hundreds of thousands of extra dollars per year and that doesn't even include like benefits and other things uh, indirect costs of hiring so it it has a price in a high throughput laboratory and absolutely a, a big price all right so the, the the main thing is one once you start going through the cases you should formally declare what your propositions are. And I keep using the word propositions. If you prefer the listener, if you prefer the word hypothesis, it's what you would have heard as a hypothesis in you know your basic scientific method. For whatever reason, they refer to them as propositions because they're not hypotheses. They're, they're statements that are effectively going to be tested and you're going to look for evidence under the different propositions. And we'll get to what those are in a moment. But they, uh, they, they put them in an order of hierarchy, and the three major hierarchies from the paper that lead author is Ian Evett. The paper is the impact of the principles of evidence interpretation on the structure and content of statements. It's from Science and Justice in the year 2000, and if you don't have a copy of this, uh, reach out to Eric and I in some way. The paper sets up three levels of propositions, and they are source level, which is considered the most basic level. And if we're talking about fingerprints, that's whose fingerprint is it? The second level is activity level, and that's how did this fingerprint get there or when did this fingerprint get there? Right. And the, and the third level is the criminal level or guilt, if you will. Uh, what did a crime occur? The classes I've taught over the past few years, uh, you know, I've uh, touched on this briefly, and mainly just to emphasize uh, the difference between identification and exclusion, and and how since uh, identification and exclusion have very different meanings, especially here, I'll get to that here in a second, we need to treat them as not just opposite sides of the same coin where like, okay, everything that's good for ID is good for exclusion, but as separate decisions that we apply separate criteria to and and treat in very different ways because they are so different. So a you know, big example here, if at the source level, you identify you know a, a subject as um, you know, the source of a fingerprint uh, that provides a you know probative value going up to that uh, activity level of they touched that item, and then has you know potential to provide probative information going up another level to the that crime level. Did they commit the crime? So, for example, if you at source level, you know, Glenn, you touched the knife. At the activity level, 
you were, uh, you know, stabbing with the knife and that, um, crime level, you committed murder. So now it doesn't necessarily follow all the time with all the other information you know, at hand, just cause you touched the knife didn't mean you were doing any of the stabbing. And just because you did the stabbing, you could have, it could have been self-defense. It doesn't necessarily mean you committed murder, but contrast that against exclusion. If you exclude someone as the source of the print on the knife, there, the, you can't go up the chain quite the same way. You can't then say, oh, well, that means he never touched the knife or he didn't commit the murder. It doesn't follow the same way because you can leave, uh, you, you can touch an item without leaving a fingerprint. So you don't have that same, uh, same strength of probative information going up those different levels, to, up that hierarchy of propositions that you would with an ID versus exclusion. So a little sidetrack, but you know, overall, these are those three levels of activity that we're we're talking about, and and how they fit into, you know, both extremes, both um, exclusion identification for latent prints. Yeah, that's that's uh, that, that's actually a very good point in that an identification, uh, identifying the source of someone's fingerprint, can actually add a little bit of weight to the next level, which is you know the activity level. Interesting, interesting point. Agreed. Okay, so we discussed those are the three major propositions, and generally speaking, forensic scientists don't really get involved in the the proving of the crime part, although there might be questions that are relevant that may need to be answered, and we might need to gather evidence. You know, For example, if you're a medical examiner, you might need to look for evidence of trauma uh, that might support that, in fact, it was actually non-consensual. It doesn't, ne- doesn't mean necessarily, but that's evidence in that direction, or it could be one thing you need to look for. Yeah, there's, there's information that may be necessary in, in determining activity level or even you know, the crime level uh, propositions that you may be ignoring or not paying attention to when you're deciding your uh, uh, whether this person is the source or not but you know some of the distortion that's present or some of the background information that's present uh, you know it may be fairly minor so you just kind of like oh, I'm going to ignore this well because everything else matches up okay it's an ID but you know notes on what on this other stuff that you may be observing while you're doing your comparison you know, may be, uh, play a big part uh, in these other questions that uh, that you know that go up the line to these other propositions. Yeah, and and I think that's one of my hangups and problems. When again, when I hear cognitive psychologists talking about domain relevant, non-domain relevant, and they seem to think that oh, it's pretty clear what's domain relevant and what's not. And I often think back to exactly this and go, well. Not necessarily. Maybe knowing the case type or what the person is being charged with actually might be relevant information in this particular case for various reasons. But if you're trying to formalize exactly what questions need to be answered and what evidence needs to be gathered, then actually it may, may be relevant. It's, it's one of those things, again, it's I think too many – People who have gotten involved in forensic science have done a disservice to forensic science by not appreciating the complexity and the breadth of information that forensic scientists can try to bring to a case. I absolutely agree. With good intentions of of improving things, they may be suggesting steps that that actually uh, don't make improvements or – uh, decrease the level of accuracy of the of the test that they're concerned about. Yes, fair. All right, and one other thing, I'll just I'll throw this out there just for consideration. Uh, I've been hearing more about it in the DNA world that uh, beyond source level, there's actually a subset, sometimes called sub-source level or sub-source proposition. And in the DNA world, it's not just is this is it this person's DNA, but what kind of fluid did it originate from? Is it blood? Is it semen? Is it urine mm-hmm. or saliva? You know, it's interesting in fingerprints. I've never thought about this till just a few minutes before the podcast tonight. We could maybe have a sub-source level where the uh, the composition of the latent print maybe is relevant. You know, is it made in blood? Is it made in ecrine or a sebaceous material? Is it a plastic print or an etched print on metal? 
No, that, that's a good point. And you know, when when I when I teach about this, um, I generally describe subsource again, source level being uh, did this did this person leave the print or did some other person leave the print? That's kind of right. the, the propositions at source level. At subsource level, the way I've generally described it is is this latent from you know identified to this person or excluded from this person as as you know uh, instead of it's a little different than source level where you're just asking if the print if the latent came from this person or some other person uh where you're actually looking at the the conclusion but i think there's lots of different subsource propositions that you could consider and uh, and you're right in dna that's a big part of it you know basically every dna test involves is this blood? Is this semen? Is this saliva? There's all these other tests that go into more than just is uh, is the DNA from this person or someone else. There's there's something a lot more that that we could consider as well. All right. So those are the basic propositions. I'm sorry, hierarchy of the propositions. And the the idea is that effectively before starting every case, you need to lay out what the propositions are that you're going to test. Now, again, most fingerprint cases are going to be pretty straightforward. You're going to have two propositions at source level. And, And you just said them, Eric. The latent print came from this person or the latent print came from some other person. And you're going to go through and and test those various propositions, gathering evidence that supports one or the other. And now listeners of the podcast who have been paying attention and have heard our episodes about same so- or support for same source, support for different source. There is a reason why OSAC and why groups are moving in that direction of using that language of support for same source because it comes from this. Well, like I said earlier, fundamental forensic science 101. This is not just some academic-y thing trying to come in. This has been around for a long time. We're now as a community just catching up and trying to kind of right the ship and and bring in the language that we should have been using for decades. Again, this isn't a a new thing. Even just looking at forensics broadly, we're on the outside of you know providing this level of information. Virtually every other field is already there and providing information on you know, support in one way or the other. Uh, that's not fully you know an ID or an exclusion. Moving in that direction is joining the rest of forensics uh, and not, uh, you know, blazing out on this crazy new trail that, that, you know, that we shouldn't be on. This is, this is joining the rest of uh, the the forensic disciplines. And and using language that is 30 to 40 years old, at least. Right. Absolutely. It's definitely, like you said, been around. Right. One of the things I wanted to comment on is that most forensic scientists, and I'll say fingerprint examiners, and I'm going to say in the United States, I'm going to keep saying that phrasing. If you're outside the United States listening to this and you have a different experience, great, but I'm talking about the majority of what I experienced in the U.S. Of course, those formal propositions are not in a report uh, in fingerprints. They're, they're not stated. I've started including them in my reports to try to get more formalized here. Uh, they're, they're not in those reports. And I want, I want to say this very clearly. When you move beyond those simple propositions, if, if in fact, I'm willing, if, if you don't put it in your reports, I, I don't I don't care. If they never go in your reports, I really don't care. Uh, because frankly, if you're making IDs, exclusions, etc., it's sort of a given what your propositions are. And they really don't deviate from that. It's when you go to activity level that they become really critical. And unfortunately, I don't see reports that discuss activity level. I see testimony that discusses activity level. Exactly. Scientists skips the whole reporting, the whole evidence collection, the whole formalizing, here's what I'm willing to say, but they get asked about activity on the stand, under oath, 
They make statements and it shows up in the testimony, but there's never been a report. There's never been anything formal. There's never been a technical review of these conclusions that are every bit as critical in some cases as source. In fact, in some cases, More defense important. isn't disputing source. Yeah, yeah. The the husband lived in the house or he had been there before. I, I had a case recently where it was an estranged husband who had just left the house three weeks before – so he had been in the house and lived there for years, and the the strange wife was murdered three weeks after the husband had left. Of course, the husband's accused of it, and the fingerprint examiner says that the fingerprint found on a shower near the body was within 24 to 36 hours of their development of it, which basically places the husband in in the, the bathroom where the body was. Testimony as to the freshness of the fingerprint. And right, which is activity level. Exactly. Think about uh, the, the, the rules at your lab, right? If you're an accredited lab, typically most accredited labs have uh, uh, policies in place that uh, prevent you from doing a, any kind of test or comparison or analysis in the courtroom and then testifying about it. They require that the evidence be submitted into the lab through the standard evidence submittal procedure that the test be uh, completed at the lab be verified by a second examiner go through the tech review and admin review process and be issued in a written report Uh, that's for an accredited lab that is that is standard right that is like baseline basic stuff and every examiner working in an accredited lab knows those rules now there may be rare occasions where the judge is like no no this is my courtroom and you're going to look at that fingerprint and compare it and then the examiner's like well this goes against my my agency policies but you're the judge and i don't want to be found in contempt so sure right but you know that's fairly rare and and as long as you say i'm disobeying my agency policies then you know that kind of covers you as you just do what the judge is directing you to do but for the most part, no examiner out there would would in an accredited lab would even consider doing a comparison. Just let me just go in the let me step in the back room here real quick, do a comparison, and then come back in and testify to it. However, when asked on the stand how fresh is this fingerprint, the examiner in a lot of circumstances, and, and you've seen this multiple times, Glenn. Will just kind of be like, well, geez, I hadn't thought, you know, in their head, well, I hadn't really thought about that. Let me just kind of look and kind of think and just boom, out there comes testimony that has not gone through any of that review. It's a result and sometimes just as important as the identification, exclusion, and conclusive support for, you know, any that decision result. Uh, But it's not written in a report, Uh, it hasn't gone through review. It, it hasn't been through the same steps that uh, the comparison decision went through, but is still coming into the courtroom. And that's, uh, that's really – we're going to talk a lot about this. Right. Frankly, it usually, that testimony usually starts with, well, generally speaking, and I know what's coming next. <laughs> right. Generally speaking, fingerprints that are relatively fresh on a surface or recently deposited are fairly clear and adhere to the powder that's placed on them. And of course, they degrade fairly rapidly after being... So although there's no scientific way to say for sure if blah, 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 generally speaking, and they have just qualified and couched it in a whole bunch of pseudoscience that doesn't necessarily support the evidence because there, as we're going to hear in a couple of weeks, how dangerous some of that testimony is when we get to an interviewee with some really good cases that shows that kind of thing. Yeah, it's um, it's always couched in the, well, generally speaking, when the correct answer is, I can't make any comment about how old this latent print is from a visual examination. End of answer. Stop. Done. Exactly. And and they, you know, the examiner may think, oh, well, you know what? I'm just answering the question that's posed to me. And I'm I'm giving it the appropriate level of caution and you know extra words like in general, generally speaking, uh, right. I, I would generally expect or it's uh, you know, some of these uh, terms. But 
in providing that result, what the audience there in the room is hearing yes. isn't the the language that you know uh, that qualifies it, but just the result. What we're we're not saying don't ever say this. It's just make sure if you're going to say this, put it through a a standard process, have a policy to cover it, put it in a report that's reviewed, and then go forward with it if there's enough you know to support that. Uh, it's it's just the flying by the seat of your pants testimony that's the problem. Yeah, and, and frankly, I would kick that report back anyway if it tried to say that generally speaking. I mean, I'm okay with, yes, generally latent prints are of a fragile nature and they can evaporate and such. But any visual examination to to make any comment about the potential age is is, is really overstating what we know. And, and I was just going to say, yes, yes, absolutely for age. There are other things where I could see this you know, ah. being useful, like the direction, right? Or, yes, um, or and, the- but that's an observation, and I and I like that as an observation. That is an observation that you made, and you know there may be some conclusions to draw from that. But sure, and even just the you know general support for you know uh, a conclusion that's that's less than a hundred percent identification. You know we've got no problem with that either. It's just that the age thing in particular uh, is problematic. But you know any kind of result. That is going to have you know bearing in the trial, which is you know which could be a lot of what you're talking about, should be put through a, a formal testing, uh, review, reporting process. Yeah, and I'm going to point out another paper that listeners may not have. And again, feel free to reach out. Uh, it was written by a number of people at the University of Lausanne, and uh, the main author is Giro. Uh, G-I-R-O-D. Her first name is Aline. Aline was always interested in trying to age fingerprints. She had done a bunch of research papers on aging fingerprints and, you know, trying to determine instrumentally and scientifically how, how old a fingerprint might be or time since deposition. And she wrote a paper that was one of her introductory papers into this whole area with Robert Ramatowski, who some listeners may know from the IAI. He often presents at the IAI. He used to work yep. for Secret Service. He's now at NIST. Uh, they wrote a great paper on uh, basically gathering all the information that we know about aging fingerprints. What do we know? What methods are out there? Uh, like this is the paper. If you're going to study aging of fingerprints, start with this paper. It's got it all in one spot. All of the issues, all of the research that was done up to that point and all the different techniques, what worked, what didn't. And what I love about the paper is it gives you about 30 cases. These are 30 cases in U.S. courts where fingerprint experts or crime scene experts said things about the age of a fingerprint and often the case was uh, reviewed upon appeal, and in many cases it was reversed specifically because the fingerprint examiner said something about the age of the fingerprint. And I'll, I'll read a few because they're exactly what we've been talking about. These are real cases. In one case, State versus Wynn, W-Y-N-N. The expert said, with respect to the latent print, was one of the last things on the glass itself. So he talks about the sequence. He's basically giving a sequence. In other words, whoever placed this fingerprint was the last person to touch it. He said it was one of the last things on the glass itself and that it was relatively fresh as opposed to being several weeks old. And by relatively fresh, I mean several days. Not weeks or months or longer. Right. Uh, expert test in another case, Armstrong v. State. Expert testified that the fingerprint was fresh because of the amount of powder it picked up, indicating the print was still moist and newly made. You can read case after case after case of all of these examples where they place some window about. Uh, you know, the expert testified that under ideal conditions, these fingerprints could last up to two years. All of these cases have things that are said that have no real basis in the science, and we have plenty of examples, anecdotes, and case studies that show that that you can have fingerprints last indefinitely on surfaces two, three, five, ten years or more, and we're going to hear from an expert in a couple of weeks on exactly some of these kinds of cases. Yeah, examiners kind of get this this feel. They think they know what fresh versus not fresh fingerprints look like, but 
that's that's based on them observing you know many many cases over a career without knowing exactly how long that print has been there right uh so or the composition which is critical to the right. robustness of the age of the fingerprint or the the environmental conditions that existed while yes. the the print was on the surface there you know you know they may see prints that look very degraded and assume okay that's been been there a long time or it's been through a lot or they see a fresh print and they go oh that looks like the test prints that i make but you take a, a you know nice fresh print you lock it in a safe where it doesn't have any you know heat or cold or wind or sun and it's going to come out in a couple of years looking pretty much the same as when it went in and and uh, examiners haven't done that test to really understand that. So, you know, reading what's out there in the literature can really inform this. But overall, you know, what we're telling you is for aging, just looking at how the powder reacts um, or, uh, you know, how clear the edges are of the, the print are uh, isn't enough. It really isn't enough to, to accurately tell the difference. You should not give an opinion based on a visual examination. End of story. Yeah. That's yep. it. Now, if you have, and I, I'm going to raise my hand, I'm sure somewhere in my early days of testimony, I probably said, well, generally speaking, somewhere. I'm sure I probably said it. If you have said something like this before, I, you shouldn't feel bad because, frankly, you probably have never been told some of these things. No one's ever gone over this. This generally isn't formally instructed. So don't feel bad about it, but you should now maybe get interested in bettering yourself and learning more about this and feel free to read these papers. And they may very well make you think twice, three times, four times before making any kind of statements about this. I, I maybe it's just I got lucky. I remember just from the very beginning of training, my my trainer being very clear that uh, when it comes to age, you just don't know. Again, I mean, I got trained a, a whole lot you know, later on in the process uh, than you did, almost a decade later. But I still remember that as a part. Did they ever do the circumstantial thing with you? The well, the only way you can really tell the age is if we know that every day the uh, the owner of the store would clean his front door at 10 a.m. Uh, and then we find a fingerprint afterwards. Then we know that it was deposited at least some point after. Do you ever have that circumstantial training? I I definitely had that. So the, I think the the closest to that is is the the language that you know the the print was was almost definitively left between the last time that the surface was was uh, sufficiently cleaned now mm. when it was mm. sufficient like what sufficiently means we can't know so that end point is kind of vague and then from when the latent was processed which we know we more or less know when that point is so yeah you know multiple different ways you know i remember in training it was reiterated to me about that uncertainty of of the you know, of the beginning point of that. And, and, you know, maybe again, that was just from, you know, a few more years of research being out there. And we're hearing about paper from World War II being processed with an anhydrin and having stuff come up. Yeah. So one of the things you touched on was sufficiently cleaned. And I wanted to, to address that because I had always learned the, you know, the uh, circumstantial aspect of timing of fingerprints. But there was a paper that came out, I think it was in 2010, maybe 12, by some Israeli research. And it was in Journal of Forensic Identification. And they did a series on uh, how long fingerprints can last on surfaces because they had a case with a fingerprint that was presumably a few years old. And they had done a series of tests on some fingerprints to uh, test cleaning products, commercial cleaning products on fingerprints. And they, they placed some fingerprints on a surface and went through and then used cleaning product uh, to see how it would affect uh, the, the latent print. And they found fingerprints after applying the cleaning product in five out of six of the cleaners that they tested. Wow. And the, uh, we're going to hear uh, in a couple of weeks from one of our guests about a case where, again, uh, there was clean, various cleaning that had happened, but they still had found a fingerprint from various years old. So even this notion of cleaning, I mean, you did say sufficient cleaning, so it, it leaves it open to what, what does that mean? Just the idea that, well, if you come along with, you know, um, some pledge and or Lysol and a rag, that's going to get it. 
Not necessarily, and not based on some of the peer-reviewed published research that's out there. Yeah, I, I mean, we've seen prints that you know etched into into services, or obviously, you know, that's that's a whole different scenario because uh, once it's etched into the surface, and you really you, cleaning isn't really the thing to worry about anymore. But uh, even just prints on the surface, depending on what the print is made out of. You know how directly applied the cleaning solution was, how hard, what kind of pressure was applied to it, environmental conditions before and uh, in time between when the fingerprint was applied and the cleaning solution was applied. It's it's not a hundred percent, and unfortunately, people have testified in a way that makes it sound like a hundred percent. Yes. All right. So back to the other aspect here. This. Ec- activity component not not necessarily the age of the fingerprint which is part of activity but the uh, i guess the action of the individual you know what was the person doing at the time that they left the fingerprint did they leave the fingerprint on the gun because they picked up the gun and pulled the trigger or did they accidentally touch the gun because it was under the seat and they were to drop something their cell phone they're reaching around for it like in the Simpsons Who Shot Mr. Burns episode, and you accidentally <laughs> touch the gun under the seat, and right. Maggie Simpson leaves her fingerprint on the pistol that shot Mr. Burns. You know, is, is, it, is it that sort of scenario? If you're going to make statements about those kinds of things, then the formal declaration of the, the propositions is really important. What propositions are you testing? So H0 might look something like, uh, the fingerprint was deposited through an action of holding the gun and pulling the trigger. So that would be one proposition. Or the fingerprint was uh, placed on the gun through an action of cleaning the firearm. That might be a second proposition. You can have a third proposition. It was done uh, – it was placed on the gun through accidental touching. Uh, the person was unaware that they had handled or touched the gun. It was under a seat. You could come up with a whole list of different propositions, but the whole idea is once you list out your propositions, and this is where it gets to the technical and and the academic part of it, you must then consider the probability to observe that evidence, the fingerprints in that position looking the way they do, in that angle, that sequence, that touch, their location, all of these different things. You have to consider the probability to observe that evidence given this scenario. And then you do it again for your next scenario. What's the probability to observe it if the person was cleaning the gun? What's the probability to observe these fingerprints if they accidentally touched it and so forth? And you go through and declare probabilities for all of these different actions. And you can do it through either using your subjective assignment that's your training and experience and your best educated guess at what that probability is which isn't the best way to do it the better way of course is to have some sort of empirical evidence where you do various tests collect evidence of this is how you normally will find these fingerprints under these different conditions and if you're listening to this and going well it sounds like glenn you're saying we should be giving probabilities here i'm not real comfortable with that guess what? Then you shouldn't be making activity statements. <laughs> End of story. And it's, uh, it, uh, you also may, may be thinking, well, that sounds like a whole lot more than <laughs> than what uh, what I was thinking about doing. I was just going to say it, it's consistent with. <laughs> right, right. Think about it from the other side. If you're, uh, if you're in the courtroom and the, the expert comes in and says that, that, you know, this is what they think happened. That's what you're going to hear. You're not going to hear the, well, that's consistent with what may have happened. They're going to say, oh, nope, that expert said this is what happened. And that's what the triers of fact are going to go with. So either make really sure through some sort of uh, empirical means that what you're saying is basically certainly what happened. Don't say anything at all or give those triers of fact some sort of indication of how often it happens under this scenario and how often it happens under this scenario so they can kind of hear both sides and and put that into everything else that they've been hearing. Right, which requires, like you said, work, data, experiments, perhaps literature. And, and next week, 
dear listeners, you're going to hear from a, a researcher who is going to come on and talk exactly about this. And she's going to basically say exactly these things in, with respect to her research and activity level fingerprint propositions. And you're going to see that it's a little complicated and requires often data to make probabilistic statements or likelihood ratio statements about one proposition over another proposition. On the plus side, you get to have fun, you know, running through different scenarios. You know, maybe maybe that's something that that uh, that you can do of get people coming into a room and and um, uh, or you know handling a uh, uh, a door. I think that's I think that's one of the more classic ones is when you touch a door, like the the placement where your hand touches, the parts of your fingers that touch, the the pressure that you touch with is very different from just closing a door. Walking past and happening to happening to touch uh, a car door, or trying to to push in the top of the uh, the window uh, far enough to get you know uh, like a slim jim or something inside. Good point. No, good point. Uh, running through some of those tests of saying, okay, if if this is the scenario of what's going on, you know, again, maybe just a print on the side of the door doesn't mean. Either anything, either way, as to what activity was left, but uh, high pressure prints right at the top of the window, uh, with the fingertip pointing up, uh, is um, to some extent uh, more probative that uh, more indicative that uh, you know someone was trying to to push in the window to get to get access to the car, and uh, but some sort of you know testing, some sort of uh, some testing to show that you're right or you're wrong, right? Um, you know, we don't just come out here and say ID because because yeah, I found everything that lined up. It's because yeah, we found everything that lined up. But in doing that, we've been able to demonstrate over years and over many people and agencies that when we do this process of finding all the features that line up. And we reach these decisions. We're accurate in doing so. So it's it's doing those steps of showing not just like on CSI where hey, there's this new technology. Let's just run this test. Boom, let's go. No, no, show that what you're deciding, what you're testifying to, what your demonstrable data. Yeah, show that that what what you're saying is accurate. All right, so now I'm going to go one step a little bit further, and I'm really going to say some things that might be a little inflammatory, but I, I hope hope you're listening up to this point and realize I, – I don't know about you, Eric, but I'm very passionate about this subject, and I kind of came to the game late. You know, I, Again, reading all these transcripts, I'm amazed by what I'm reading people saying, and these are certified experts with – they're not just new, I and mean, they're 10, 20, 30 years of experience saying some fairly outrageous things, and it, it, um, these aren't just exceptions. I'm seeing it all the time now. Right, and you know, I guess it's just your turn. I was passionate and, and inflammatory last week, so your turn this week. <laughs> <laughs> Fair enough. If, if you think about it in these terms, we have a methodology in this discipline, and that methodology is ACE-V, right? You'd agree with that, Eric? That's, that's what we're calling our methodology – whether or not it's a methodology or not, it's what we call our methodology. Yep. There's there's lots of debate about the word methodology and the word ACEV, but but the setting all that aside for now, yes. All right. And and all right, so if that is our methodology, I'm willing to accept that. It is set up for source propositions only. There is no component to it that deals with activity level. So if you're getting involved in activity level and dating of fingerprints you don't have a methodology. And if you don't have a methodology, then you definitely haven't had it validated. I'm going to ask out there uh, rhetorically, ask yourself, what training, formal training, have you had on activity level and aging of fingerprints? And what proficiency testing have you had on making statements about activity level or aging of fingerprints? And what is your scope of accreditation? Is this a category of testing? that you are proficient in and competent in to give statements to. And then if you start thinking about those questions from an accredited standpoint, have you formally declared your conclusions in a report? Have they been technically reviewed? Do you have the supporting technical data to support those conclusions? If all those things start making you uncomfortable, good. They should because you should begin to see, 
oh, uh, I'm making statements and conclusions that could potentially change the course of a case. Someone could be convicted on what I'm about to say, and the way I'm saying it, I should maybe think very carefully about what qualifications I have to be making those kinds of statements. And I know that might sound a little harsh, but it, it should make you stop for a second and go, God, I never thought of it that way. But you should because activity level propositions are in some cases just as important, just as critical as source level. Think about everything you do for source level propositions. Have you taken those same steps and pains with respect to activity level? And the answer for most fingerprint examiners in the United States and even in many other countries I've been to, the answer is no, they have not. I would say that most examiners don't even want to go down that whole road and go through all those steps to get that into a report, which is fine. But the, the I think the key here is then also don't go down this road on the stand. Right. And and you you wouldn't be out of line to say, you know what, that's actually outside of my scope and training. I'm generally familiar with the concept, but I don't really have the data, the training, the proficiency in that area to make a comment about that. That's fine. You would do that with just about any other thing. If they right. started asking you about DNA or footwear or other things, you would do the same thing. This is no different. Or even more so, in the peer-reviewed published uh, papers that I've read on this subject, there is not enough uh, information. Uh, I don't have enough information uh, to accurately determine the age of this print. Yeah. Okay. I'm fine with that too. So this is a beginning to a, you know, a few episodes in a row that we'll be doing on uh, activity level propositions. Uh, we got some uh, some good guests coming up here in the next couple episodes. Uh, definitely looking forward to that, and hope you guys are enjoying this discussion. And you know, you know, to be honest, Glenn, tell me what you what your kind of thoughts are on this too, because initially when this kind of stuff comes up, my initial thought is, oh, everyone already knows this. It's in hearing. It's in, in 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 so much as maybe not just like the all the details about activity level, like you're saying. You know, we don't we're not taught on this, but everyone already knows. Just don't go here. Like we don't know enough about this stuff, so just you know, just know enough to not go here. Uh, but from you know hearing you talk about you know what you've seen in in transcripts, you, people. That's not the case. People are actually going here where they shouldn't be be going. Oh, people are going here. They're bivouacking here. They are hanging out here. <laughs> they are. They have gone there, come back, and going again. Okay. Okay. Uh, so that's that's why I was, you know it, the initial reaction of I'm glad we're we're going through and presenting this topic and and having a few episodes in a row and talking to people that have studied this and have examples of this and have papers on this uh, because. It really is more of an issue than, again, what I had, had thought before hearing some of these stories about what you're seeing in, um, uh, in transcripts. Yeah, and, and I'm going to say this too. One of the things I know that's happening in the DNA community, and Eric, you and I touched on it back when we were looking at the Making a Murderer series when yeah. they were talking about activity level. And given this proposition of Avery uh, touching this object on the vehicle – you, uh, how much DNA would you expect, you know, for this proposition versus him doing this or him doing that, you know, whether or not the DNA was planted and so forth. Those were all activity level propositions dealing with how much DNA would you expect to observe under different propositions. And the DNA community has been struggling. I shouldn't say struggling. They've been dealing with this now for the last few years, and it's becoming more and more and more of an issue as their techniques become more and more sensitive. The amount of yes. DNA <laughs> and, and how the DNA got there is becoming much more critical than whose DNA is it. That, that's an important part because it associates someone. But then the defense is usually, well, yeah, I mean, they – once shook this person's hand two or three days before and so you might have had some double cross transfer or they sneezed in that room you know with you know a bunch of other people there are a number of explanations so these are now becoming more critical questions in the dna community and the dna community is coming up with formal methods for handling this they're beginning to look at and propose methods for putting this in a report Having it peer-reviewed, uh, having expertise in this area, formalized training, proficiency testing, competency testing, all things I just talked about, and having this become a part of their scope and their accreditation. 
I can guarantee if that happens in the DNA community, we will not be far behind. So I'm urging people now to kind of get ahead of this, get an eye on this. And I've already given you some ideas of where to get some training and more knowledge on this. I, I actually believe this will be coming. Maybe not in the next two or three years, but five to ten years, it will not surprise me once DNA has a method and a way of reporting it formalized in, in your lab report, not on the stand like they're currently handling. But before you ever go to court, this will be something that we're going to deal with. All right. Well, uh, the warning is out there. So, <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and well, we also, we can't let the DNA guys get too far ahead of us, you know? Agreed. Uh, we, we, we've already got the, uh, the head start with the black box paper and well, you know, being able to tell twins apart, but so we got to keep our advantage there and and, uh, and and keep that going forward with uh, with all this other stuff too. All right, well, Glenn, um, then let's close this one out and uh, we'll leave uh, listeners wanting more for the the next couple. Uh, don't forget you can uh, email us Eric at rayforensics.com or Glenn at eliteforensicservices.com. Double loop pod for Twitter and uh, Instagram and uh, patreon.com is how you support us or the doubleooppodcast.com and our store there. Uh, let's see. Opinions expressed are those of the speaker, not anyone else. And just want to thank you guys again for, um, you know, uh, continuing to listen all the way up into, uh, this new decade. And, uh, uh, we're excited to, uh, to keep providing uh, content for, uh, all our listeners out there. And with that, I'll talk to you guys next time. Bye everybody. Have a good week.